when we have an input that is so viscerally different than everything we have experienced before, it either breaks us or we have to integrate that new experience. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Today's episode is with Aerie in the air, and he was on episode 632, if you remember, talking about highlining, and highlining is like tightrope walking across, you know, a canyon or a gorge or a valley, and in this case, in his episode, it was an abandoned asbestos mine, which was a world record, actually, so it was pretty an incredible episode, and it's linked in the show notes if you want to hear it, um, but he, today we're talking about paragliding. Something else that Ari is just very much experienced in and very skilled at. Uh, and even if it's something you never imagine yourself doing, he talks about it in such a way that you can learn something from him. We talk about meteorology, philosophy, uh, social issues, all from the perspective of paragliding. And what's so timely about this episode is that it talks about perspective. If you've ever heard of it, the overview effect that astronauts experience is uh, is a real thing. When you see the world, the shape of the world, and you see it so small from like the International Space Station or something, your perspective for the world changes. You don't see, obviously, any country lines from up there. You don't see any disputes. You don't see wars. And you, you gain this compassion for the world you never knew you could have. And astronauts talk about it extensively. It's been studied for quite a while now, so I highly encourage you to check that out. And so Ari says you, you you do experience that paragliding too. So you come back to Earth, you know, after being up there 10,000, 15,000 feet, uh, kind of in control of your own kind of destiny flying around and everything and, and, and being so much more in tune with the world, just coming back down the perspective that it changes. And that's something that I think we could all use right now. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, paragliding to me seems like this superpower, like the ability to fly. And also just so you know, he shares an incredible story at the end. So I encourage you to listen all the way through and you're going to notice something else in today's episode. We have an ad again, like a mid roll ad right in the middle of the episode. And, uh, I really encourage you to check out this company. It's a, a CBD oil company known as Cocanacare. And, you know, as, as things start opening up, we'll start getting more and more ads. Obviously, you know, not a lot of advertisers weren't wanting to spend money around uh, the height of quarantine and everything. But, uh, you know, you're going to see here and more, more and more of those, but it, that helps support the show. So I, I would love it if you gave it a listen and uh, considered buying from these companies. And you can find out more about that in the show notes as well. But anyway... Very excited about this episode, and I hope you learned something, and uh, it encourages you to uh, continue to always change your perspective, because I think that's what helps us become more compassionate, become more kind, and more understanding to the folks around us. It just was such a cool, unique experience that I'd love to, I wanted to talk to you again about, you know, uh, the world of paragliding. Cause it's something I've got some friends that do and all that, but yeah, we can, uh, kind of get right into it if you'd like. Great. Great. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, the other day we had a interview scheduled and I totally blew it and didn't show up for, which is actually the universe, um, trying to make me think a little bit clearer about it because this weekend I went camping out at my local paragliding site for my best friend's birthday. And I just was ruminating on what it is that I actually do, what it is that it means, like what the experience really is. It's hard to, it's hard to verbalize the experience in a way that actually conveys the power and the meaning that is behind this. And so, you know, of course, this is something I've tried to do just infinity times is tell people what paragliding is and what it means and what it, you know, what the experience is. But to do that, I have to, I have to do a couple of things. And I thought that I could paint this, this different 
like I, I could kind of paint for the listener here a different abstraction. And to do that, I'll, I'll have to teach you a little bit about the earth and how it breathes, how it's alive in ways that we typically don't understand, in ways that we typically don't experience or feel, and also introduce you to a new way of playing. Okay, so I'll start by saying that Everyone knows what a kite is. When you go to the beach and you see somebody flying a kite, there's a kite that has a single string that you just hold on to and it flies itself. But then there's those kites that have two strings and you can steer them and you can make them do spins and you can make them, you know, kind of flip around. And, and it's these kind of kites that you can gain skill at flying. And so at the most primitive level, paragliding is physically essentially about learning to fly this kite. And if you can imagine your first time flying the kite on the beach, you're kind of learning left and right. But you could imagine that someone who became an expert at this could pretty much take an apple off of somebody's head with a kite flying it really fast. And uh, there's a level of precision that is really beautiful. And there's a level of understanding and feel for the wind and for the conditions that you gain by playing with this kite, right? So that's the first, there's a first element of paragliding that is being the kite runner, right? That it is playing with this toy, okay? The paraglider is a little bit different than a kite because the paraglider actually picks you up and you fly the kite with your own weight and you actually leave the ground, okay? So the first part of paragliding is being the kite runner. The second part is understanding how the earth breathes. And most people know that the wind blows and they experience the wind in a horizontal way. That means the wind is coming from over there and it is moving to over here. But the reality is that the atmosphere is so much taller than we experience on our day-to-day -day basis and it breathes in a vertical component. Okay, and to illustrate that, I'll have you imagine a little dandelion. The little ones that have the little like uh, parachute seeds that you, you know, you can pick it and you can blow it and all the little seeds go flying off. Okay. So exactly. Make a wish. And uh, yeah, make a wish. Out. There you go. <laughs> blow them out. Okay. So you can imagine that one of those little seeds, imagine one day the wind takes those little seeds off of the flower and picks it up into the air. And maybe it even gets 50 feet off the ground. Maybe it gets a hundred feet off the ground. Okay, and before that little seed comes back down to earth, another little gust of wind picks it up and it goes a little bit higher. Okay, and as the wind blows it, it runs into another piece of wind that's hitting some kind of object, which gives it a vertical component. And this little seed gets 500 feet off of the ground. Okay. Mm hmm. From 500 feet, the little seed has quite a bit of glide, like it's going to take a while for it to come back down to earth, which gives it more opportunity for another piece of wind to take it up even higher. And you can imagine that over the course of a day, the seed could get picked up to heights really, really, really high, like upwards of 10,000 feet off of the ground. And up there the wind can carry that seed hundreds of miles in a single day. Jeez. This is, in paragliding, we even have paraglide races, and it's funny to race something because paragliders are actually very slow. And what we are trying to do in paragliding is allow ourselves to be the seed. We are literally forecasting the weather, and we are crossing our fingers that the day that we go out and we launch our paragliders, the wind works just right and it picks us up into the sky and it carries us hundreds of miles. So understanding how the earth breathes in this vertical component, which is driven by the sun, this is a solar powered phenomenon. So if you imagine at 4 a.m., the air is very cold and the earth is very cold. And then as the sun begins to shine, it heats the earth. And as the earth releases that heat, hot air rises, obviously, and it gains a vertical component. These thermals are how paragliders go up. 
and we use that force to get up in the air, and then we try to use the horizontal wind to take us downwind a lot faster. And in doing so, we can cover huge amounts of ground. The third element to this whole picture is somewhere between a sailor and a marathon runner, because a sailor has to use the wind. It has a sailor has to understand the swells, understand the currents, and although a sailor is not a cargo ship, it's not like a sailor uses the diesel engine to just push through whatever wind and whatever current there is, a sailor has to use all of these things, has to have knowledge of all of these things to work with nature, not against it, to do what is possible on any given day on the sea. And there's also this element of marathon runner where it is, there is an endurance element. So the world record paragliding flight is nearly 400 miles in a single flight. And that is 11 hours and 55 minutes in the air. So there is this endurance part and there is also this deep cooperation with nature that is built on years and years of experience and beginning to understand how the earth breathes. And we are essentially trying to become these little seeds that the earth blows from Oregon into Nevada. You know, like that's how far we can actually fly. We can literally cross states. And it's funny because we we fly in these harnesses where, you know, I have snacks I have a flight computer, I have a condom catheter so I can urinate, I have a camelback so I can drink water, and my harness like becomes a little sailboat. I can close my eyes and rest, I have music, and there is this endurance element that's like, okay, this is going to take all day, but I'm willing to go all day. So there is a there is um like an endurance element to it. So between the dandelion theory that the wind does this on its own like and it's not uncommon for me to see dust in the air when i'm really high off the ground or plant matter whether that's leaves or tumbleweeds wow, really or, oh yeah wow. or plastic bags you know trash like you literally see trash on yeah balloons or anything or is that kind of oh, like totally. A... oh totally totally wow. yeah <laughs> so Everyone has, knows what a dust devil is, right? Like we've seen. Yes, I actually saw dozens of them in the San Luis Valley a few weeks ago. So it's so funny you say that. I mean, I remember seeing some of the biggest I've ever seen in my life probably two weeks ago. Okay, so a dust devil, I can explain a dust devil phenomenon to you, and it'll help you have a mental image of what a thermal actually is. So if you imagine a, if you imagine the heat of the sun heating the ground to the point that it has to rise, You can imagine a tablecloth on a table, and if you pinch the tablecloth right in the middle and you begin to lift vertically on that tablecloth, the corners of the tablecloth are all moving in towards the center, right? So if you imagine the thermal, it begins to rise from the middle, but then that means that cooler air is all being entrained, it's being drawn in towards the middle, and as that air runs into itself, for it to go from a horizontal component to a vertical component, it begins to swirl, just like the water in a toilet bowl, right? This is the Coriolis effect. So in North America, it goes clockwise. In South America, it goes counterclockwise, or vice versa. I don't even know. But this is what a dust devil is, is the air is rising up so fast that as as it creates wind from every direction, that wind runs into itself and it begins to swirl. The vertical component of the thermal gives it the updraft and now the wind picks up dust, it picks up dirt, it picks up plant matter, it picks up tents and whatever is there, depending on how strong the thermal is, it picks up plastic bags and it takes it up. So it's not uncommon for me here in Central Oregon, where I live, to see a dust devil that is a thousand feet tall. And so, um, you know, maybe people have seen like the videos from like music festivals where big, 
you know, in August, the big dust devils come through the camping section and lift up tents or they lift up, you know, like all the people's camping equipment wow. is now flying in the air. That's how powerful a thermal is. And in a paraglider, it's not uncommon for us to have climbs that are in excess of four meters per second. And to put that in perspective of what that can look like over the course of certain minutes is I have gone up about 10,000 vertical feet in eight and a half minutes in my paraglider. Can you feel that? Oh my God, of course. You're like wrestling. You're like wrestling. Sometimes, depending on how smooth the thermal is, some days it's just like perfectly smooth. Mm -hmm. Everything is consolidated into this big column of rising air. And you just sit there and you're paragliding and you just turn in circles and you stay inside of this column of rising air and it just takes you up and up and up and up and up. Other days, it's a little bit more violent and you kind of have to wrestle and manage the glider to stay in the lift. But yeah, we fly with you know, flight instrumentation that tells me my altitude and my vertical speed. And I also use what's called a variometer, which tells me my, my vertical speed and it beeps. Yeah. Yep. Uh, beeps at different tones. And so if I'm really, really going up fast, it'll beep, 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 beep. And so when you hear that noise and you can find the center of this thermal and you sit there and you turn in it, it's essentially like spiraling up into the sky. Wow. Let's take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, CoCanicare. If you're suffering from stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, inflammation, pain management, kind of like I am pretty much all the time, I highly encourage you to check out CoCanicare.com. And that's C-O for Colorado. It's a Colorado-based company. Canna, C-A-N-N-A, care.com. They make incredible CBD oil that's derived from all natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states and is USDA certified 100% organic. And there's absolutely no THC content in the oil. It's non-GMO and contains no heavy metals or pesticides. They've been gracious enough to help support us during this time. So if you're wanting to try CBD oil for any of those reasons I mentioned and a lot more on their website, I uh, highly encourage you just to give it a shot. Check it out. Go to CoCannaCare.com. And again, that's C-O for Colorado, C-A-N-N-A, care.com. Now back to the episode. Is there a threat of going too high or is that not really an issue? Um, yeah, there definitely is a threat of going too high. First of all, we are regulated by the FAA to stay under 18,000 feet. Mm. 18,000 feet becomes a uh, different classification of airspace where you have to have certain avionics and licensing to fly in and paragliders are only regulated like we can only fly under 18,000 feet but obviously if you go over 18,000 feet and you launched at 2,000 feet then you're going to have a hard time breathing and you're definitely going to have a hard time breathing for a long period of time so there are places in the country like um, Idaho Sun Valley, Idaho is one of the places where people regularly fly with oxygen because pilots will regularly get over 12, 14, 15,000 feet and can sustain that level of flying for an hour or so, which hypoxia becomes a big issue, just not having enough oxygen in the air and you get loopy and you make sh terrible decisions and you get silly. The other risk with flying too high is what we call cloud suck. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds with micrometeorology, but essentially the white Simpsons clouds that we see, the big puffy white clouds on a nice summer day or a spring day that we see, basically what's happening there is the warm or the, the moist air that's on the ground is being heated and it's rising up. And as it goes further and further into the sky, the air gets cooler and cooler and it begins to cool the air. Once it gets cool enough that the air can't hold the moisture in solution, it condenses. We call that dew point, right? Mm -hmm. So once the thermal rises high enough, it hits dew point and it creates a cumulus cloud. That's what causes a cloud. That's why it has a flat bottom. When we look at those clouds that have puffy tops but flat bottoms, that flat bottom is the altitude at which the water comes out of solution and becomes that cloud. Okay. And the physical property of water is such that when water evaporates, it 
takes energy, right? So like if you drive between fields that are being irrigated on both sides, you'll feel the air cooler there because as the water is evaporating, it's taking energy out of the air to evaporate, right? That's why like a mister will make it cooler. And the opposite of that, when water condenses out of solution, it releases energy. So when that cloud gets up to dew point and the water condenses, it actually essentially creates its own little thermal. So it creates more upward energy. And that's what you see when you see a big thunder cloud that gets really, really tall is because there's so much moisture rising that as it condenses, it lets out the energy and it goes taller and taller and taller and taller until it creates what we call free convection, which means that the cloud is actually powering itself and you don't actually need the thermal anymore. That's what creates hail. That's what creates thunderstorms and rain, all of this energy that's moving around super high off of the ground. And as a paraglider, that means that when you get really high off the ground, you get underneath these perfect clouds, it can begin to suck you up and it can create climbs that are so strong that you can't really escape it. And it can suck you up into a cloud. And if that's a thunder cloud that's overdeveloping, that can take you in excess of 30,000 feet in the sky, which you'll freeze, you can't breathe. And pilots have been killed by being struck by lightning inside of these clouds. There is a legendary story of a paragliding race in Australia in the outback, the big hot desert that two pilots were sucked into the same cloud. Actually, one was a Bulgarian woman and the other was a Chinese man. The Chinese man was struck by lightning and died and fell to the ground. And the woman was sucked up to like 30,000 feet and passed out for 90 minutes and was spit out and basically woke up at like 23,000 feet or something. It took her two more hours to get down to the ground, and she had to have part of her nose amputated and part of her face grafted, and she lost like six fingers and, you know, just from frostbite from going to 30,000 feet in a thundercloud. So, Holy yes. cow. I, yes. It's like you could be, because I know there's also the phenomenon where like air can give out um, and you drop it's it, it there's <laughs> you're adding all this new element of danger that I didn't know existed for it i I never would have thought about being sucked into one of these cumulus clouds, but I mean that makes sense that makes like scientific sense that is wow that is that that it makes the sport sound pretty scary <laughs> in all honesty, yeah, and it's also beautiful, you know the cumulus clouds yeah. are visual indicators of the top of a thermal, so as oh, a pilot yeah, true when you launch, you say, okay, look at that cloud. There's a thermal that's creating the cloud. So how do I put my paraglider inside of that thermal and sit in, and spiral in a circle up to the bottom of the cloud? Because the bottom of the cloud is typically the top of lift, right? That's as high as you can get in the paraglider. And then when you get there, you know, you look at the next cloud and you say, there's the next thermal. So I'll just go that way. And thermals will end up um, almost aligning themselves to the wind. And so what happens is we get what we call cloud streets, meaning that these cumulus clouds will be in a line and the line will be downwind. And so basically you get in, you, you get to the top of one climb at the bottom of a cloud and you just go to the next cloud and then you go to the next cloud and you go to the next cloud and you go to the next cloud. And this, this is the powder day of paragliding where you can see the climbs, they're obvious they're tall, they're really high off the ground, and you know where the next one is, and you don't have to think about where it is or go searching for it, and you just go cloud to cloud to cloud to cloud with the wind at your back, and all of a sudden, you're in the next state. <laughs> so, so can I ask you this? These thermals, they, they move along the ground similar to like a, a, a dirt devil does? Yeah, so some days, depending... Depending on the wind, a dust some days a dust devil will form and it will like almost like sit on the ground in the same place and will just go perfectly mm -hmm. vertical. That means that there's no wind. Some days they will like their feet will stay on the ground, but their body will lean over in the wind. And other days the dust devil will its feet will move along the ground and the whole thing will be blown in the wind. So it's both and it's like the air can essentially do 
so many different things that as a paraglide pilot, you really don't want to assume that you know how it works. You really want to be observant and you want to leave space for you to be wrong. You want to leave space to learn something new on any given day and say, okay, this climb, you know, is taking me downwind. And, and sometimes the thermals, they are operate like a column of rising air. Some days they operate like a bubble of rising air. And some days they work like bubbles and columns. Some days they're a column that is kinked. And so it rises for 2000 feet and then breaks in half essentially, and then goes downwind and then rises again. You can't ever really know until you're in multiple climbs and you really get a feel for the day. But yeah, the atmosphere is a very wild and chaotic place. And there's a saying in paragliding that if you could see the air that no one would fly. And so (laughs) (laughs) no one would do this sport. (laughs) Yeah, no one would do it. If you, you could really see it, you wouldn't do it. But there are certain ways that we can have visual indications of what's happening. And those are dust devils. Those are clouds. Those are other pilots in the air. Those are birds in the air. We spend a ton of time looking for birds. And just the other day, I climbed 2,000 feet with a golden eagle that was about six and a half feet wide. And we came within 12 feet of each other and looked each other right in the eye. And I've flown with birds all over the world of varying sizes and shapes and been attacked by falcons in Morocco and in Mexico. And I've flown with 15 foot wide condors in the Alps. And um, so the birds are a really great visual indication as to what's going on. And they have hardware that we don't have. They can literally feel the pressure differences in the air through their ears. And so we tend to follow them almost blindly, like, because <laughs> they know what they're doing right, so much right. better than we do. But this, the, the type of paragliding that I'm talking about here, where we're trying to be the seed that gets blown from Oregon into Nevada, is called cross-country paragliding. And it's not the only kind of paragliding, of course. And when I started paragliding five and a half years ago or six years ago, what I really was interested in was acrobatics aerobatics, making the glider fly backwards, making it flip, making it do huge turns and, and do all kinds of spins. And, you know, cause I came from, I was a professional freestyle skier and loved to do flips and tricks and ski backwards and all this stuff. And so when I got into paragliding, I was like, oh man, the tricks that's, that's for me. And so I spent my first nearly four years in paragliding, traveling the world to these different where I could get a ton of altitude and I could do tricks and then I could get more altitude and do tricks. And I wasn't using that altitude to go places. I was using it to create a giant cushion of air between me and that hard object that we call the earth that kind of, uh, <laughs> tends to tricks. terminate your, <laughs> yeah, it terminates your falls in, uh, unpleasant ways. So we try to buffer our tricks with lots of air, lots of atmosphere above that thing. So, which was a really great way to get into paragliding because now as I fly cross country and I fly in all of these crazy, turbulent, chaotic, unseeable, you know, this invisible thing that can really just like smack your glider out of the sky. I have, uh, you know, years of experience in making my glider collapse on my own accord and opening it back up and flying it backwards. And, um, you know, so it's a, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you kind of have this, you know what to do in these situations cause you've essentially created them for yourself. And yeah, that's, that's, that's smart. It's almost like learning how to fall in, in martial arts or something, you know, it is it's, it's, totally, it's, you know what to do when, when something does go wrong. Cause it's, you practice it a thousand times. That is, this is really fascinating. I, I've never done it, but, um, I mean, it it seems so such a interesting point of view. And, and speaking of, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called like the overview effect that astronauts experience, where they see the curvature of the Earth, and then it just makes them, in a lot of ways, just more compassionate for for people and for the world, and to to all these uh, little conflicts seem to disappear within them, and they try to you know provoke that on other people. Is there any some, any sort of that when you get so high above the earth, really leaving with your own feet from the ground, not getting in some sort of metal airplane and flying up there? You know, it's different. But when you do it all yourself, it's all on your own accord, and you're in control. 
Like, what is that feeling looking down at the planet, knowing you're going to have to get back down there in, you know, a few hours or so, but I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Does it make you think about oh, things differently? I absolutely do. I absolutely do know what you're talking about. That seems about, like to be that... the most, probably the most fun part about it is just that perspective change. On our last interview, we talked about slacklining and I told mm-hmm. you a number of the life lessons that I've learned from slacklining, the patience, the presence, the not rushing, the different parts of my body that can do the balancing that my mind cannot. And the things that I know in life, the deep truths that I have experienced in in my life, I know from sport and paragliding is no different. Paragliding has changed my life in really profound ways. And the overview effect that you're referring to is one of them. There is a natural propensity for our perspectives intellectually to change when our perspectives physically change. So as an astronaut blasts off and gets into orbit and looks back down at the earth and he's like, holy shit, my physical perspective has changed so drastically that my intellectual compassionate perspective has to change. It has to change to account for this new physical perspective. That's the thing. That's it's, it's not something that can happen. It's something that must happen because as we have evolved to try to make sense of our sensory inputs, as we have evolved to try to understand and be able to operate in the world, when we have an input that is so viscerally different than everything we have experienced before, it either breaks us or we have to integrate that new experience. That is exactly what's happening at the International Space Station. That is exactly happening with Chris Hat, you know, Captain Chris Hatfield as he mm-hmm. goes into orbit and he's like, oh my God, maybe, maybe humanity is one. Like maybe we are just one. Maybe we're not just, maybe I'm just not just Chris Hatfield. Maybe I'm actually a part of a bigger organism. Maybe I am part of the earth. And the same thing is true with paragliding. You get into a physical sensory experience that is riding the wind, that is getting 10,000 feet off of the ground and looking at the highway that you drive your truck up and down every day and thinking, wow, there something has to change in my intellectual perspective to account for this new sensory experience that I'm having. And it's the same exact thing as the the space station. And I think that you drew a delineation there between motorized aviation and non-motorized aviation. And I think that as people get on a commercial aircraft that is piloted by someone else that they offload all of their trust onto and they have no experience for understanding the forces of flight, the way that the earth breathes and all of these different factors, it is a lot easier for them to not integrate this new perspective, right? Because we've all flown in a commercial aircraft and looked down from 39,000 feet and seen the earth from a completely different perspective. But there's almost a disconnect there with the window. There's almost a disconnect with offloading our risk onto the pilot, onto the aircraft, all these things that we don't understand. But yeah, paragliding is the, the wind is on your face. The controls are in your hands. And you're really high off the ground and you are a soft creature and the earth is very hard. And so there is, I think, an element of exposure that might be the impetus the impetus for this mandatory integration of this new perspective where, how do I say it? It's like I interviewed this guy on my podcast. His name is Nick Hawks. He has his own podcast as well. And we talk about there are these moments in these sports that we do. And I think I mentioned this in our last interview talking about the world record high line where you're just totally out in the middle of the void and self-reliant. There are these moments in paragliding where if shit really hits the fan, there is not anything that any person or group of people can do to save your life or to help you. It is this dance with nature. It is this exposed dance. 
it is that I am soft and mortal and the risk is still worth it and you go forward anyway, you know, and it's that is another piece of the puzzle that brings about such a visceral change in perspective is this risk and this uh, facing your own mortality and also trying to take into account what is important and what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to risk my life? How much risk am I willing to take? You know, last year I was the first responder on a really gruesome fatality at my local paragliding site. And less than a month later, flying with my best friend in a really remote place, he crashed into the top of the mountain at sunset. And I thought I watched him die. And then I ended up, you know, doing a four plus hour rescue where I carried him down on my back 2,000 vertical feet through boulder fields. And that was like a really visceral wake up call of like, you know, I've always known on some kind of intellectual level that I could die doing these sports. But watching someone die and then watching my best friends, um, my best friend who I really respect as a pilot crash is something that makes you take it more seriously and definitely more viscerally and also makes you question what is important in my life. And so, you know, emotionally, I think that as a professional action sports athlete for my entire life, like from the time I was 12 years old, I was doing flips on skis and I was jumping out of trees and I was, um, I could do flips on wakeboards and jump off bridges into water and all the stuff. I feel like there's probably some seeking of thrill for my own entertainment, but there's also some kind of seek for validation externally, whether that's parental or peer. And so as I, have grown up and I have started my own podcast and I have become a writer and a speaker and a guide in certain ways, intellectually and spiritually, I dare say. It has made me reflect on what I think my real gift to the world is and how important it is to give that. And so it has made me reframe my risk taking in a way that acknowledges the deep, deep, deep meaning and joy that I derive from these kinds of sports, these kinds of activities and experiences, but also recognize that my gift to the world is a both and situation. It's a, it's a, I want to inspire people with my adventure, with the sheer physical um, accomplishment but also a perspectival inspiration that not only is it just a cool thing to do, but it's actually a way that I create a really deep meaning. It's a way that I create my own identity. It is a way that I connect in a very, very deep way with nature. It's a way that I connect very deeply with my friends and the people around me. And it's a way that helps me frame my own existence at a very foundational level. And so paragliding is absolutely a philosophical perspective changing thing. And it totally changed my life. In the first couple of years, it changed my life because it just changed what I wanted to do. And I wanted to paraglide all the time. And as the experiences stack up, whether that's just getting really, really high off the ground and looking down from a totally new physical perspective or landing out in a rural village in China and having no ability to communicate with the locals and being completely and totally cared for, it has changed, it has changed my life and it has forced me to mature. It has forced me to look at what's important and to continue my, my search for meaning and for purpose and for what is important. And I have just so, so, so much gratitude for paragliding as a sport and for the people that I do it with and for my own ability and privilege that I get to chase it in such a passionate and free way. Yeah, it's just an absolutely incredible way to experience nature in the world at large. 
I can only imagine, honestly. Uh, it, it seems like it is one of those sports that can totally consume you. You know, like climbing can be for people where you're just, you really have to be in the in the moment. A lot of climbers transition into this or find this sport later and, and get, you know, obsessed with it. And um, I mean, it just seems like something that's just totally enrapturing for, you know, no pun intended, for, for a while. And it's like, pulls you up into the air and, and you're able to just look down at all your problems, down at all those things that you can get back to later, like climbing a big wall, I'm sure is, or being out on the the high line. You know, we talked a little bit about it before, who who can, can high line and who can start doing stuff like that. What does it take to get into this sport? Because it doesn't seem like there's a ton of room for error when you're you know, even 20, 30 feet off the ground, if you were to fall at that height, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be pretty bad. So, you know what I'm saying? How do you ease your way into something like this? Totally. Yeah. So just to frame what I've shared thus far is I have been flying for five and a half or six years or something. Mm -hmm. And I've flown, you know, over a thousand flight hours in 12 countries on five continents and have really, really gone super deep. And the kind of paragliding that I've been sharing today is cross-country paragliding, which is the most, it's almost like the pinnacle of paragliding. It's almost like the hardest, the hardest type of paragliding. But to bring it down to the entry level, you can imagine that you go to the beach and there's a big sand dune and the perfectly smooth coastal air just blows right up the sand dune every day. You can fly a paraglider right there barefooted in board shorts and a tank top for hours and hours and hours on end very safely it's so much safer there's no thermals there's no there's not these big huge vertical components of air and heat um, you really remove a lot of the things that i've kind of talked about today and you can just merely begin to become that kite runner. You don't even have to leave the ground to learn how to handle a paraglider and how to launch it. You, And that's how people start. They start by handling the glider on the ground. We call that kiting. And on the beach, the wind is really smooth and it is soft. You know, the sand is soft. And so it allows you to fall over. It allows you to have a little bit harder of a landing, although the sand is pretty unforgiving at a serious crashing level. But, you know, all up and down the coastlines of the world, people paraglide in really smooth coastal air. And for the, you know, for a big part of the time, you don't even need to touch the brakes. You don't even need to touch the controls. It's just the wind is smooth and the paraglider flies and you just sit there and you can fly up and down the coast. And it's a really beautiful, really peaceful, very meditative way to experience the air. And it's so beautiful. So... To learn paragliding, when you learn, you basically have any number of different veins of paragliding that you can get into, you know? It's almost like biking, you know? Do you want to have a, a beach cruiser with a basket on the front and just, like, ride around with some wind on your face and a bell and ding ding and wave <laughs> to people? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to ride a road bike and, like, go really far on a road bike? Or do you want to ride a mountain bike or... You know, do you want to jump them? Do you want to try to do a flip? Like there's so many different ways you can ride a bike and the same thing. There's so many different ways you can fly a paraglider and there's so many different kinds of paragliders and places to fly and every place has a different type of flying and yada, yada, you know, ad infinitum, ad infinitum. So yeah, you learn by having an instructor and you learn by being patient and um, it basically, you got to learn by... A lot, a lot of people who want to get into paragliding tend to be thrill seekers on some level mm -hmm. and paragliding forces them to reassess what they think they know, what they think they're capable of because paragliding's not like, it's not really a sport you can crash. Like you can never, it's not like highlining where we can happily fall off the damn thing a hundred times a day. It's not like mountain biking where you can kind of go off the trail and crash a little bit and tumble and laugh and get back on and keep going. It's like, if you seriously crash a paraglider, the chance that you die is pretty good. And so it's, it's aviation, you know, like you don't learn a plane being like, okay, just get out there and try it. And if you crash, just right. dust it off, right. buddy. 
You're like, no, if you pla- if you crash an airplane, like the chance that you die is really good. So aviation in general forces us to recontextualize our own risk and our own skill set and our own knowledge and our own decision making, decision making, decision making, decision making. It comes down to that so, so, so much in paragliding and in aviation in general. It's so much decision making. And so as we learn, we're really forced to re-understand how we learn things. And that kind of come, comes down to ambition. Like how ambitious are we willing to be in our learning process? Do we think that we're capable of doing X, Y, or Z today? Or do we need to like tone it down? And what does it look like when we see the local experts flying? Do we try to fly just like they do? Or do we give ourselves lots of time and space to learn? And do we stay within our limits? And do we... Uh, curate proper mentorship and do we become a part of the community that can take criticism and uh, constructive advice and how how well do we communicate with other people and how likely are we to seek out advice and information and all these different things. Um, learning to paraglide is life-changing both in it changes your perspective and it gives you new experiences but it also forces you to reconsider your risk and your skills and how you interact with all of those things. Wow. I didn't realize just how varied it was, but then again, I, I don't until you, you really don't until you start getting into a sport or a culture or something and realize, wow, there is so much variation. You know, this, this might be a hard answer or a hard question to answer, but is there a, a particular flight or an experience somewhere paragliding that just really sticks out to you, something that was really special or, you know, I, I, I don't know. Is there, is there a flight yeah. that you could paint a picture for us that was just incredible for you? Yeah, I totally can. And here we go. Story time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to close Story time with air in the air. Okay. <laughs> so I am a Central Oregon native. My Great-grandparents lived on the west side of the mountains in Oregon, and in 1939, they came over and homesteaded just west of Smith Rock in Terrebonne, Oregon. They were cattle ranchers, and Smith Rock is part of a larger butte that we call Gray Butte, and last summer, we decided to to go paragliding off of Gray Butte midday attempting cross country, right? My goal was that I would fly from Gray Butte and I would fly 30 miles south back to my home in Bend, Oregon. So I launched my paraglider and I almost sank out, which means I like got low to the ground and I was cursing and then found a climb that took me up into the air and I was thinking, woohoo! Yay, I'm not landing. And I flew over Smith Rock State Park, which had been a five-year goal of mine as I learned to paraglide. Being from the area, I thought it'd be so cool to be able to fly over Smith Rock. And I did that in my first glide. And I thought that was so cool. Well, I grew up in Redmond, Oregon. And so I basically launched mere miles from my great-grandparents' homestead ranch. And I flew right over it. And I looked down on it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like these, These are my roots right here. I then continued to fly over Terrebonne and Redmond, Oregon, but Redmond has a regional airport that has a pretty extensive airspace regulation, so I have to fly, I can't fly in the airspace, which is really important, and so I stay out of the airspace, but I'm not finding any lift, and so I just am gliding and gliding, and I think I'm going to land, and I basically fly over my uncle's cattle ranch, and I call him on my cell phone and I say, Hey, look up. I'm the green guy. I'm the guy under the green glider. And he says, Oh my God. Like what? (laughs) (laughs) It blows his mind. And I keep flying and I fly right over my grandmother's house and right over my grandmother's house. I'm getting really low. And finally I find my friend who launched before me and we had been separated for an hour in flight. And I see him and he's lower than I am. And he finds a climb. And so we, meet up in this thermal. And so now we're spiraling in this thermal together and it's right over my grandmother's house. From that climb, we flew further West to this place called Klein Butte, where my great grandparents used to graze their cattle. And my great grandfather bought a thousand acres of this place in 1952 for 500 
cows and a thousand bucks or something, just some kind of ridiculous number, right? right, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've flown from great grandparents' homestead ranch and over my uncle's house, over my father's house, over my grandma's house, now over the place where as a child, my father would take me out to Klein Butte and we would find my great grandfather just sleeping in his truck. And I would say, dad, is he okay? He says, yeah, he's just sleeping. I said, should we wake him up? He says, no, he's just taking a nap. And so we would just, (laughs) we would just leave grandpa sleeping there and (laughs) and carry on with our day. Okay, then. (laughs) Yeah. And so from Klein Butte, we continued to fly south and we flew over Tumalo, which is this little town. And and we flew over Bend, Oregon, my hometown. And I flew right over my house and I looked down at my house and I thought, this is awesome. And we continued flying south. And in the afternoon, the climbs get taller because the thermals become more developed as more heat, you know, it gets warmer. And so we get really high off of the ground and I continue going south and the wind gets stronger. So I start going faster and faster and faster, you know, four and a half hours into the flight, my friend Tim and I are still flying and our friend who landed early, his name is Jake, and he was chasing us in the truck and has the radio the whole way. And so he's saying, I, I still got an eye on you guys. I got you. You fly as far as you can. And so we keep flying south and we end up making it 100 miles, 97.6 miles we flew that day. And I landed just next to the highway in a rest area that was a really sketchy place to land. And I was exhausted at that point. We had flown for five hours and five minutes and flew, uh, you know, just under a hundred miles. And we landed in a town called Shamolt. Shamolt is maybe a population of 500 people. And it basically has a big gas station that the is on the side of the highway. That's basically what people know it for. And Jake was there to pick us up. We drove back into town, went to a restaurant where I bought Jake dinner for driving 100 miles to come and pick us up, (laughs) obviously. And that night, I called my father, and I told him what I had done that day. And he says, hmm, that's pretty interesting. He says, you realize you started at your great-grandparents' homestead ranch. You flew over their spring and fall grazing area at Klein Butte. And then you landed in Shemolt, where they used to have what we called cow camp, where every summer my great-grandparents would do a cattle drive on horseback, and they would herd their cattle the, the hundred miles from where I took off to where I landed, where they had grazing rights on this big piece of property, and they would live there for the summer grazing their cattle. And he said that... It was there in Shemolt where they lost Nathan. And I had heard this story as a child, but I never really knew it. Never really underst- I had never really heard it in full. So in 1989, my family was out at Cal Camp, my father included, and their second cousin had brought his two children over from the valley and were volunteering at cow camp. So to volunteer at cow camp basically means you drive out with your horses and you ride around on horseback and you kind of just keep an eye on the cows, that kind of thing. Well, one day my great-grandfather was riding his horse and little Nathan, he was nine years old, was on his horse, and Nathan got tired and wanted to head back to camp. They were only a few miles from camp, and they were on a road that led right back to camp. Also, horses know where home is. Horses have a built-in GPS and know where the food is and know where they, you know, where the water is. And so if you basically turn your horse back the way you came, the horse will likely just walk right back to camp. Well, Nathan was complaining to my great-grandfather, as a nine-year-old boy does, that he's tired and he's hungry and he wants to go home. And so my great-grandfather said, yeah, okay, go ahead, go back home. That was the last Nathan was seen. And Nathan became lost. And what ensued was the largest manhunt in Oregon State history. And this was in September that Nathan was lost. And... The National Guard came out and they put up these huge tents 
people donated food. They basically built these huge tents like they do for a wildland fire fighting mission where they're going to house, you know, 500 firefighters and feed them and store all these supplies. And people were driving in from all over the Western United States on, uh, with their horses to come and volunteer their time to go out on horseback and look for little Nathan. Right. And at some point the snow came, Shemult is about 4,500 feet in elevation. And at some point the, you know, the ground gets covered in three feet of snow and they have to call off the search. A month later, his horse was found and Nathan wasn't found. His body was found the next spring. What my father told me was that the search for Nathan was the most incredible thing he had ever been part of. He said that the search for Nathan was the thing in his life that reassured him of the good of humanity, the positivity, the camaraderie, the there, there was a little boy lost and that literally thousands of people, complete strangers, had dropped their lives and loaded their horses up and driven to Shemult, Oregon, in the middle of nowhere, and were just taking turns cooking, taking turns going out on horseback, and doing these long overnight sweeps looking for little Nathan. And this story that my father told me landed on really ripe soil, because like we've, like we have talked about at length today, I grew up in Central Oregon. This is my home. I've lived my entire life here. And to recontextualize it by not just paragliding off of one of my local buttes, but off of the butte that right next to it, my great-grandparents homesteaded and to fly over my uncle's ranch, my grandma's ranch, my father's house, the place I grew up playing as a child, to fly over my own house, and to finally end up at the furthest southern stretch of what was my lineage's livelihood and to hear this incredible story of how people came together. This is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about and how paragliding changes your perspective, how camaraderie and teamwork and self-reliance, all these things can swirl into a beautiful mix of experience even in tragedy right like there is a levity on far side of tragedy and even though nine-year-old boy was lost in the woods and was likely terrified until the moment he died there was this levity on the far side of that tragedy of a reassurance of the good of humanity a reassurance of what people are really willing to do amidst crisis, amidst tragedy. And I think it's a really relevant story right now because I think that we're all going through this. We're all in this gigantic show together. And yeah, that's like this. That's the story that that's the one, man. That's the one. Gosh, man, that is incredible. And absolutely, that is definitely a relevant principle. And uh, gosh, it just, I mean, everything you said, man, that was incredible. Um, and that you got to fly over that and see it all and just experience that. And, you know, it, it, this is a time for us to show that side of humanity again. And, uh, well, shoot, man, I'm sorry. I've run out of time and I've actually got some more work. So another work call right now. But, uh, Ari, man, I, I really appreciate you being back on and sharing, you know, an, an, uh, something else you enjoy, something else you like to do, something else you're passionate about and that, something we don't get to talk about a lot, highlining and paragliding. We get a lot of runners, get a lot of cyclists. So it, it's really cool to hear someone who is so into these other things. Um, yeah. I want to yeah. thank you again. And I'm going to, you know, I would ask you to share where, it, where best to find you, but you shared that on the last one and I'll replug everything, but yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Golly. Yeah. Man, I'm stoked awesome. to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> yeah. I would love to come back on again. I think the next one we'll talk about skiing, particularly in the okay. backcountry and wilderness ethics. That's something that the other day I found a pile of pistachio nut shells at my local paragliding site. And I was like, oh my God, like this is something we yeah. still have to talk about. Okay. We do. So yeah. I, I, th I think that would be a good one. We don't get to, we don't actually don't cover that a lot, but it is something I'm definitely passionate about and would love to just remind people or, or teach them for the first time if they don't know. So 
Yeah, I, I'd love, I think I have a pretty nuanced perspective on that. Uh, redefining litter is something that I've actually written about. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And if people want to check out more of the philosophical side of my ruminations, then they can check out the Airy in the Air podcast. And Absolutely. that's Airy in the Air. I would definitely highly, highly suggest checking out your podcast. It's gr- it's a great listen. You've got some great guests as well. So yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Okay. Talk soon, Mason. Yes, sir. All right, Ari. See ya. See ya, man. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.